For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and a mutual edification. So far this family month, we have seen that the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace, and today we'll also see that it is joy. The kingdom of God, that is where God rules, including our homes, is righteousness, peace, and joy. Righteousness is right relationships. Right relationships are a characteristic of the kingdom of God, but they are not, for the most part, a characteristic of the kingdoms of the world. Think about it. Do right, and by that I mean just, kind, merciful, and most of all, loving. Do right relationships characterize your workplace? What about your school? What about Washington, D.C.? Or Pyongyang, or Berlin, or London? The kingdom of God is righteousness, right relationships, starting with God and then with others. It's also peace, including peace in our homes. Once relationships have been righted, peace can grow. And peace does grow. It's not a static thing. It's not merely the absence of conflict. It is a positive wholeness and health between people and God and people in people. And then the kingdom is joy. Now, we're near to the heart of the kingdom when we come to joy. Joy sings from its citadels. It's one of the shared resources in heaven, like air or water. Heaven is serious about its joy. But we, I'm afraid, are not yet so joyful as God intends us to be. Imagine this. You've just got to heaven, and you should be happy. But you're worried about what God's going to say to you. You'll probably bring up that porn thing or that 20-year grudge you refused to let go of, or your first marriage that didn't end well, or the lies you're standing before the throne, and the great God, the glorious Father says, I am grieved. And you think, I knew it, I knew it, it's that grudge. I knew it even then that it was wrong. Or, Or maybe the lies. But what he says to you is, my child... Why were you not more joyful? And you say, what? I I mean, almighty and glorious God, Lord of heaven and earth, creator of all things visible and invisible. What? I thought you were going to ask me about the porn or, or about my first marriage or that time I cheated in the 11th grade. You, you did know about that, right? I'm not letting the cat, cat out of the bag or anything. And he will say, Child, we will talk about those things too. But first you must tell me why you were not more joyful. Do you have any explanation for that? Because if you'd just been more joyful, the porn, the resentment, the divorce, the cheating, it never would have happened. St. Thomas Aquinas said, Man cannot live without joy. Therefore, when he's deprived of true spiritual joys, it's necessary that he become addicted to carnal pleasures. We need to be joyful. It's not a luxury. It's a necessity. I sometimes think we look at the Christian life backwards. 
We focus on not doing the wrong thing when we should be eager to do the right thing. We focus on escaping punishment when God wants us to strive to enter joy. We're passionate about avoiding shame, but indifferent about entering glory. It's good that we don't want to sin. God doesn't want us to sin either. But he understands that joy is the best protection against sin. He designed it that way. That's why Paul told the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord and then added, it's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it's a safeguard for you. A safeguard. See, if you're constantly giving in to temptation, the surprising reality is this. You're not joyful enough. You're not as joyful as God desires you to be. At times, the church's message to outsiders seems to be, don't be stupid. Accept Jesus or you'll go to hell. And there's truth to that, but that's like trying to sell a Ferrari with the tagline, it beats public transportation. We have something great. You know, there'd be fewer atheists if we Christians were more joyful. Our churches would be full if the people in them were full of joy. A church can have doctrinal correctness, moral rectitude, and political clout, but if its people do not have joy, it will lack appeal. So my first point is a simple one, but it's one that maybe you haven't thought of before. God wants you to be more joyful. God himself is the most joyful being in the entire universe, and he wants his children to share in his joy. What did Paul tell God's people? Rejoice in the Lord always. What did he say was the motive for his ministry? I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. Can you picture that on a pastor's job description? Help church people be more joyful. Man, it ought to be there. To the Corinthians, Paul wrote, We work with you for your joy. He wanted his friends to know the joy of being Jesus' people in the kingdom of God. The vile idea of a God who despises pleasure and wants to stamp it out, whose favorites are all tight-lipped, grim-faced religionists, couldn't be further from the truth. If the Heavenly Father wants you to give up one pleasure, it's only because it's keeping you from a greater pleasure from all joy. As C.S. Lewis put it, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered. You think God is disappointed in you because you're not spiritual enough, or maybe not gentle enough, or not holy enough, or whatever. First of all, disappointed is the wrong word to use. God's never disappointed because only someone who doesn't know the future can be disappointed. And God knows the end from the beginning. He's never been disappointed, not once. But he has been grieved. And when you and I live joyless lives, he is grieved. Your heavenly father wants you to be joyful. That's my first point. My second point is this. Joy originates from without. It's not a state of mind that you or I can work up. Joy comes from outside us, from a bigger world. If we're not open to that bigger world, we will not have joy. 
The reason the birth of a baby, which is an illustration Jesus himself used, the reason the birth of a baby is such a joy is that it connects us to a bigger world, one we have not yet known, a world rich in possibilities. The most important connection Christians have to that bigger world is through the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection connects us to the bigger world where God rules, where death has been defeated, evil routed, and joy unspeakable radiates with glory. It's a world of rich possibilities, one to which we cannot yet go, but that has come to us through the resurrection of Jesus. If we close the windows and doors of our soul, if, if, if we shut ourselves into our own ambitions or our hurts or our failures or even our successes, the winds of joy will not blow through. We may have success, we may have failure, we may have pleasure, we may have pain, but we will not have joy. The way of joy is not in, but out. Joy comes from outside, and it invites us to come out too, to come out and play, to come out of ourselves, our troubles, even our successes. We are never further from joy than when we're most occupied with ourselves. Our health, our feelings, our relationships, our reputation. When we forget about ourselves, even for a moment, joy becomes possible. This is true in any activity. Skiing or dancing or playing a game or falling in love or offering a prayer. Remember what Jesus said, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, for me, will find it. When the winds of joy blow over you and you're filled with joy, the quickest way to lose it is to think, oh, I am full of joy. This is what I feel. This is happening to me. Joy comes from without. Focus in and it'll be gone. Because joy comes from without, we can have joy even in trouble, even in grief. There's nothing contradictory about being in grief and having joy because joy does not originate in you. It comes to you from outside, from the larger world where the God of joy exercises sovereign rule. And because that's true, you can even count it all joy when you fall into various trials. You can count it all joy because you know outside you and your problem, the great God is at work. And he will make this trial, this very trial, and every trial serve your good if you belong to Jesus. And he will use this particular trial to make you something you could never otherwise be. He'll produce perseverance in you so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. On the eve of Jesus' crucifixion, a few hours before his arrest, he told his disciples that he wanted his joy to be in them. He knew what was coming. This is a few hours before his arrest. And he tells them, I want my joy to be in you. Later, he prayed to his father for his disciples that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. What is Jesus' joy that he wants his people to have? I believe his joy is his father and the kingdom he rules. 
His Father is good, loving, unstoppable, unbeatable, glorious, joyful, and wise. And his kingdom is good, just, peaceful, blessed, beautiful, glorious. His perfect rule has reached this rebellious speck of dust we call earth through Jesus, and nothing can stop it. And this God, by the grace of our Lord Jesus, is our Father. Open the window and let that air blow through. Or close it and breathe the stale air of your own problem-filled life. So joy comes from outside. No sense in trying to work it up because joy is not in you. Remember what the author of Hebrews said about Jesus? Who for the joy set before him, before him. The joy was out there because out there is under the control of the all-powerful, all-ruling God. Joy doesn't come from you, it comes to you. It's always a gift. And that brings us to my third point. The joy that comes from out there enables a person to do what he or she would otherwise find impossible. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. According to the author of Hebrews, Jesus did not endure the cross through sheer determination nor through personal strength, not even through genuine holiness. He endured it through joy. Without joy, we will often lack the wherewithal to endure. What is it you're going through right now? What's God want you to endure right now? Is it a difficult marriage? An illness? An unjust situation? A loss? Maybe a painfully messed up relationship? How can you possibly do it? Through joy. How counterintuitive it is. We think we need to buckle down and try harder when we really need to open the windows and receive joy. We fault ourselves for not being spiritual enough when the real problem is that we're not joyful enough. The joy of the Lord, Nehemiah said to the people of Israel in their grief, the joy of the Lord, he told them, is your strength. If you close yourself up, in the small chamber of your illness or difficult marriage or broken relationship until your world is no bigger than your problem, you will be weak and you will get weaker. But if you come out of yourself into the joy of the Lord, you will be strong. So first point, you're probably not joyful enough. God wants you to be joyful. Second point, joy originates from outside, not inside. Third point, joy is strength. Joy enables us to do hard things. Fourth point, faith is essential to a Christian's experience of joy. Faith is essential, but there's not a one-to-one correspondence between faith and joy. It is not, if you trust, you will be joyful. In fact, the moments when you are most aware of the need to trust God are usually the most trying moments in your life. But a life of trust, even when it's lived over years and decades of hardship, is the kind of life into which joy comes often to visit. It may be that the end of such a life becomes pure joy, as it was for the pilgrim William Bradford. Bradford came over on the Mayflower. 
During his final days, according to his contemporary, the, the famous Puritan Cotton Mather, the God of heaven so filled his mind with ineffable consolations that he seemed wrapped up into the unutterable entertainments of paradise. He entered joy and stayed there before he left earth. Faith opens the doors and windows to God's larger world. Faith connects us to the kingdom of peace, to the resurrection that overthrows death, and to the God who makes all things work together for good. Faith is our connection to the outside, where the winds of joy continually blow. St. Paul writes, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Fill you with all joy as you trust in him. When you're in the middle of some tough situation, when you're discouraged and ready to give up, when the walls are closing in and your world has shrunk to the dimensions of your problem, trusting God at that moment opens a window into the larger world. Now, it doesn't force your problems out, but it does invite God and his rule in. It allows the winds of joy from another world to blow through your life. But you must trust God, this God who makes all things new. You must believe in, trust in, rely on the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the path to joy. But there are also paths away from joy. You can choose not to trust. You can say to yourself and others, my life stinks. I have no hope. Nobody cares. God doesn't care. I'm all alone. You know what that is? It is sheer unbelief. It's a rejection of the gospel and of the God who announces it. Christ is standing outside where the winds of joy blow, knocking, Revelation 3.20, and you're ignoring him, locking him out and yourself in with your problems. Faith doesn't cast your problems out. It invites God in. Faith's not a tool to get your own way, but an invitation connect you to your own God. Another way to lose joy or at least miss out on it is to stuff yourself with joy substitutes. Joy substitutes are the junk food of the spiritual life. Distractions like food and sex and TV. You remember when you were a kid and your mom would say, you'd leave those cookies alone, you'll ruin your appetite, supper's almost ready. It's not that the cookies are bad. She probably made them. And it's not that food and sex and TV are bad, but use any of these things as a substitute for joy, and you'll miss out. You'll miss out on joy. We also miss out when we focus inward. You know you're doing that when your thoughts are mostly like, well, how do I feel? What do people think of me? That wasn't fair to me. Uh, Why should he get what I don't get? Because joy comes from outside, turning inside, turning inward is a joy killer. We can have joy. Jesus' joy. Because we have a God who loves us, a Savior who died for us, and a glorious future awaiting us. And besides that, our present circumstances, even the hard ones, must serve God's purpose for us. We can experience this joy more and more frequently as we trust our God.
And he merits our trust. Let me close with a story Brendan Manning tells about a guy named Ed Farrell from Detroit. Ed planned a two-week vacation to Ireland to coincide with his favorite uncle's 80th birthday. When the big day arrived, Ed and his uncle got up before dawn. They dressed in silence, and they went for a walk along the shores of Lake Killarney. When the sun first peered over the horizon, Ed's uncle stopped, and he just stood watching it rise. He stood still as stone for the next 20 minutes. And all that time, neither he nor Ed said a single word. And then suddenly, the old man began to skip along the shoreline, his face just radiant. When Ed caught up with him, he said, Uncle Seamus, you look very happy. Do you want to tell me why? That's when Uncle Seamus said, Yes, lad. And there were tears running down his face. Yes, lad, you see, the father is fond of me. My father is so very fond of me. Children, your father is fond of you. He is so very fond of you. He wants you to have joy. Trust him. Open the windows and let the winds of joy blow. Amen.